Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, do me a favor as we get started this morning. I'd like you to do me a favor. Grab a Bible if you can in front of you. There's one in the pew. If you don't have one, just take it home with you, and George Claiborne will buy a new one for the church. Right, George? So look at Psalm, look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, it's right there in the middle of your Bible pretty much. See how it's open? Okay. I want to point out something to you in Psalm 32. Okay. Before I read the scripture. You see it? If you have it, raise your hand that you, you know where you are. Okay. Okay. Psalm 32. Then let me point out something to you. It says Psalm 32. And who does it say has written this? David, you see the little word right next to it? What's the little word right next to it? You see it? Anybody, can anybody pronounce it? Masculine. Do you know what that means? No, probably not. The word masculine means a word of instruction. It means uh, David is writing a word of instruction. He is teaching from his own personal experience a life lesson. David has been contemplating and thinking about his life, thinking about something that's happened in his past. And so he has then turned around and wrote this psalm in order to instruct us. And since this psalm was originally considered a part of the Hebrew scriptures, it has been instructing people for centuries on the benefits of confession the consequences of remaining silent and holding our thoughts and feelings in, and the joy of forgiveness. What this psalm teaches is that when we have walked away from God or when we have found ourselves on a road we did not want to go down, when we find ourselves in a place, a dark place, David is trying to make the point, he's trying to say to us this morning, that when I look back at my life and I look back at a dark, dark moment in my own life, I found that God is good and that God offered me a path back. There is a way back to me, God says through David. And David is writing this on the other side of a very difficult experience. Now it's interesting, right in the middle of the psalm, he has this great line, he says, when I kept silent... I was in anguish. While I wrestled with my thoughts, I really, really struggled. Anybody wrestle with dark thoughts? Just me, probably. But you know, the thing I love about that is the word in the Hebrew there for, for, for is groaning, but it really means this battle going inside that is fierce and ferocious, a wrestling with self-doubt, fear, anxiety, guilt, and all these kinds of things. So much so, he says, that it takes on a physical dimension, a spiritual dimension, and a mental dimension. I'll acknowledge before you very openly that my, who my worst enemy is. I know who my worst enemy is. It is myself. I am my own worst enemy. And the battle, the battle that's going on is not often on public display, Miguel. The battle that is going on is the one that's going on inside of me. It's the one where I'm wrestling in my head and my thoughts. And before you ever see negative behavior or sinful behavior or poor actions or shooting off my mouth, usually it's something that's come from the inside of me. You see, what you see manifested on the outside of me the visible part of me outside that's unholy, unhealthy, and uncool is usually the result 
of something going on in my mind. And what David is teaching us in this psalm is that God can be trusted. That when we are failing, what we need is the unfailing love of God. I'm going to bring back this point in a minute. But that we can trust God with our darkest selves. That we can offer our heart to him and he will not turn us away. And that he will, he will lift our sin from us. He will cover our sin. He will forgive us and not hold it against us. Does not mean that we do not experience the consequences of our actions. But it means that God will not hang his guilt over us. Now this is what he wrote. David wrote, blessed is the one, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Transgression meaning when I've stepped on someone else, I, I've stepped on God, I've crossed a boundary when I have sinned. Whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. I love this. In whose spirit there is no deceit. You also could say treachery. The person does not have a treacherous spirit. David is basically saying here, blessed is the person who is honest with God and does not hide who or she is and is not attempting to deceive God or themselves. And then he lays out why this is so important. He says, because when I was silent, when this battle was going on in my mind, while I was being weighed down with something that was overwhelming me, does anybody here have something that you keep thinking about that you wish that you had done differently. Anybody here have regrets? What he's saying is when we, when we carry that regret, it just eats at our heart and our soul. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. What he's talking about here is our conscience. He's talking about that inner voice in our head that re is wrestling with what's going on when we have done something that's disappointed ourselves, others, or God. The difference between right and wrong. When we're wrestling inside our mind and we know that we need to make a change. God's hand has been heavy, has been speaking to me. God has been addressing my life situation. If you listen deep enough to the inside of your soul, you will hear God, who knows you intimately, speak to your soul about your life. Sometimes we distract ourselves. That's why the devil put a cell phone in your hand. I don't know. Steve Jobs isn't the devil, but we distract ourselves so we don't have to pay attention to what's inside of us. Am I right about that? Right? Great thing, but distracting thing. So then this is what he says. So he goes from the blessing and the joy of forgiveness. He goes then to the condition of holding it in. And then he says the sweet relief. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then he adds this instruction, therefore let all who are faithful, let all who are faithful, meaning anyone and everyone who wants to come before God, pray to you while you may be found. Pray to you when the time is fitting. Pray to you in their moment of need. 
The Hebrew here is really unclear. It doesn't mean that God is not, can be, not be found. It means pray in that moment when the moment arrives when you need to have a talk with God because surely the rising waters will not reach them. And he goes on and makes this wonderful declaration. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of trouble and deliverance. Think about this. God is our hiding place. Now, isn't that a wonderful psalm? Isn't it a great psalm? I'm looking tell me, are you here? No pulse. So let me give you the backstory. When you look at this psalm, you go, that's a really beautiful psalm. This psalm could be applied to any and every situation in David's life. But I want to point you back to a dark moment, and I want to tell you the back story to this psalm so that you can understand the gravity of what David is writing about and realize that no one is too far gone to be delivered from the love of God. That when we are failing, there is a path back to God. When we are failing, we need the unfailing love of God. That confession, the foundation for confession is trust. Humble yourselves before the Lord before our life humbles ourselves. So if you look then at chapter uh, 11 of 2 Samuel, let me briefly summarize the story for you. Now you may be familiar with this story. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is firmly established as king. David then sends his men off to battle. But for some reason or another, David stays behind. It does not go where he is meant to go. Maybe he's having a midlife crisis. Maybe he's bored with his work. He's wrestling with something inside of him. And it tells us there in chapter 11 that one night David can't sleep. He gets up from his bed. He walks out on the roof and he looks around and surveys what's below him. And he sees a woman who is bathing herself. It was an act of purification after her menstrual cycle. She was there performing a a cultic rite of purification. He notices that she is a beautiful woman, does not know her, does not know for her name, but because he is king and he has people around him who do what the king says, he says, find out who she is. She's beautiful and bring her to me. David then moves from what's going on in his mind to his actions. He brings her up to his room and takes her as his own. That's the backstory. That set in motion a whole set of circumstances that led to tragic consequences in David's life. Now, I want to point out to you how relevant this story is for the world we're living in today. How many times do we hear over and over again People, particularly men in positions of power, using their power to violate those who are under them. To abuse, to violate women, to use their power. Now let me be very clear here. This is not an affair between David and Bathsheba. This is not adultery between David and Bathsheba. Because Bathsheba could not say no to the king. In that culture, when a king takes a woman... She is his. Now, I'll point out to you in the story, 
why is it, why is it that when we read this story, we always think that Bathsheba was seducing David? What was she doing down below him, bathing? It doesn't say anywhere in the story that she was naked. We read that into the story. Nowhere in the story does it say that the thing that Bathsheba did displeased the Lord. She is removed from that judgment we hear later in the story. You see, that's what we do with our culture. We blame the victim. He was killed. What was he doing in that spot? She was raped. What was she doing there? Why was she wearing that? He took advantage of her in the workplace. This story is being told over and over and over again in our culture. That's why people in positions of power have to understand that leadership is a sacred trust. That's why people in positions of power have to surround themselves with trustworthy advisors. That's why people in positions of power have to understand that power seduces. Now, I will tell you, on this story, we have been victimizing Bathsheba for centuries. And wouldn't it be interesting if Bathsheba had her own book in the Bible? Wouldn't it be interesting if Bathsheba wrote her own psalm of lament? Think about this for a moment. At some point, David, when her husband dies, will take her to be his wife. What do you think that was like for her? She had no choice. To be married to the man that assaulted her and then to the man that murdered her husband. Now, here is the problem with the story. Again, it's about leadership. Sacred trust. Let me point out to you, Daniel Strickland said this at the uh, Leadership Summit this couple weeks ago. She says that how we use our power, that how you use your power is the measure of your leadership. And that character is much easier kept than recovered. And again, we hear this over and over again in our culture. When people in positions of power abuse their leadership, it's not just wounding the person that's doing it, but the people that are around them. I lived in Houston during the Enron scandal. The Enron Corporation, um, they employed thousands of people. When the whole empire came down because of fraud, the people in the, in the Houston community, thousands of people lost their jobs, and people who were near retirement lost their retirement income, and it ruined people's lives. Or just hear what we hear in the news recently from Pennsylvania. Clergy abuse in Pennsylvania were 300 people, 300 ministers, priests, abused uh, children, and then it was covered up by people on top. Or how often do we hear people, clergy, other people using their position who are admired and respected and then hurting others and using their power and then losing all that they had because of their actions. Now I want to point out to you, for every clergy person that you hear who does that, there are thousands everywhere who are faithful and doing the work of God and serving. But the point is that leadership is a sacred trust. And everyone has influence. When we use our power to, 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 and we don't pay attention to our pride, and we don't have people around us that tell us the truth, we hurt other people. Now, why is this important? Because I want you to understand the anatomy of what happened to David and the background behind this psalm. So here's what happens. David then tries to cover up what happened. 
He brings Uriah home, her husband home, thinking he would, from war, thinking he would go sleep with his wife. But Uriah is an honorable man and will not sleep with his wife, instead stays with his men. Realizing this attempt to cover up his sin has failed, he then brings Uriah into his palace and gives him wine, thinking a little wine, a little song will send him home to spend the night with his wife. But still he's an honorable man and he sleeps among the servants. The cover-up gets worse because sin itself is progressive. The more we hide, the bigger it gets, the worse it gets. The consequences get more extreme. So at this point, he sends Uriah back to the, to the battlefield carrying a note that has been sealed. Uriah won't open it because he's an honorable man, but inside the note is his death sentence. Put Uriah on the front lines and in the heat of battle, pull him back, pull back your other men so that he may be killed. This resulted in the death of others because they had to get so close to the battle lines that other men were killed too. And in the story we hear that, that Uriah is killed and then there's this poignant line in the story. It says that when Uriah's wife heard her husband was dead, she mourned for him. We have read this story so wrong for so long, we have forgotten that Bathsheba was the victim and that David used his power this is, it's unfortunate we continue to have this same conversation over and over again in our culture. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she, and you know she got pregnant, I forgot to mention that. that oh, it's a part of the story, right? They were both going to be stoned to death. After the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then here's the line in the story. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The problem with the cover-up, the problem with treachery, the problem with deceit is eventually it will be discovered. David, where was his advisors? Now here's the interesting thing about David. Dave, this is what I, boy, I tell you, I love this about the Bible. If I were writing the Bible and putting the Bible together, I wouldn't tell you the story because it doesn't make David look good. You know, we want to scrub history clean of failures and faults. But if you want to have a reason to believe that the Word of God is the Word of God, take a look at the honesty of the Word of God. In the Bible, you have honest, real stories of real people, and you see their failures and their faults. And what makes David so intriguing to me is that David was incredibly devoted, but also incredibly flawed. You know anybody that's in your life that's incredibly devoted and flawed? Everybody, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. But in the story, so what happens is the Lord sends Nathan to him. Nathan is a truth teller. He goes up to David and said, David, I want to tell you a story. There was this rich man, and he had a whole herd of lambs. They were just a part of his flock, one possession among many. But right down the road from the rich man was a poor man who had one little lamb, and he loved his little lamb, and the lamb was like a member of his family. 
One day, some people from out of town came to town, and the rich man wanted to throw a party for his friends. So instead of, he told David, instead of taking one of his own lambs that were just property to him, he went and took what was not his. And he went down the road and took the lamb from the poor man. Anybody think the Bible's not relevant? How many rich and powerful people today are taking away the poor man's lamb, right? It's injustice all around us in our world. Poor men are having their lambs taken away and they have no recourse. So he takes the poor man's lamb and feeds it to his guests. David at this moment is absolutely outraged and said, tell me who that man is because when I find out who this man is, surely that man is going to die. He's going to pay a penalty for his actions and have to repay the poor man ten times over for what he's done to the poor man. Dramatic pause. And he looks at David and says, You are the man. And then he offers these words. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing What is evil in your eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. And then, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. He then goes on and says, David, I want to point out to you, and he'll he'll forgive him. Go ahead and point to him, you know, your actions... Now think about this. If David had gone before the Lord earlier and quicker, had confessed before he ever took action, if he had ever brought out what was going on in his mind, he never would have had that woman brought up to his room. He never would have covered it up. He would have just brought his heart and life before God in honesty. But the consequences of what happened to David and his family are significant. You know what happens immediately after the story? Turn the chapter. And because one of David's sons saw his dad take what he wanted, didn't belong to him. His son took what didn't belong to him. And then another son took his life. And another son attempted to take what didn't belong to him was David's kingdom. As a result of David's actions, his family is in crisis. We have to protect ourselves. We have to protect our families. We have to guard ourselves. We need people around us that will tell us the truth. But let me tell you a story. So one day in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I met my wife, uh, Teresa, I was a pastor of a small congregation. And one day, a guy drives up in southwest Little Rock driving a red Porsche. Now, I'll tell you, in Little Rock, Arkansas, southwest Little Rock, Arkansas, there were no red Porsches except this guy. So what did he do for a living? He was a drug dealer. Drives up. I'm walking out of the business. says, can I talk to you? I said, sure, let's talk. He says, well, I was, I was caught selling $10,000 worth of cocaine to a DE agent. They were going to throw me in jail. But I turned evidence against another drug dealer who murdered a couple teenagers, so they let me off. And he said, I need to change my life. 
Welcome to Parkview Christian Church. Within a month, he was taking up the offering. That's what you do, right? I'm, I'm making a joke. But I baptized him. He repented, which means to, to come back, changed his, made an attempt to change his life. But well, how do you get a new job when you've been a drug dealer for 10 years? Now, it was interesting because he had a whole bunch of friends, and they were all hoodlums. We formed a, a, a softball team out of it. Nobody wanted to play us because they were violent and horrible people. <laughs> it was pretty fun <laughs> playing softball with a bunch of people who, had, who were pretty rough around the edges, you know. Hey, Dave, can you owe me five bucks for a pack of cigarettes? I'll put it in the offering plate, Sonny. It's like I take money out of the offering plate. So, this, so after about six months, the guy can't get a job. I said, he said, I'm, it's not fair. I, I gave my life to Jesus. Why won't he get me a job? I looked at him and said, he, you gave your life to Jesus. He forgave you, but that doesn't take away the consequences of your actions. What are you going to put on your resume, narcotic salesman? How are you going to make six figures, you know, in this kind of job? The consequences of it. Don't blame God for what you've done to yourself. He's given you a new start. Start over where you can. Well, within another year, he got involved in a hot tub scheme. That's a whole other story. Hot tubs, Arkansas fraud leads him back to prison. And as far as I know this day, he's in prison because he wanted immediate, immediate gratification for his change. It doesn't happen that way. And that's the whole value of the story. The whole value of the story is, is bring it before the Lord. Don't cover it up. Don't hide. So here's what happens. Then David said to Nathan, when confronted, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So then David wrote Psalm 51. Psalm 51 has in the subscript the psalm that David wrote after confronted by the prophet Nathan. And that's the moment when he's most broken. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, for against you I have sinned. Wipe out my sin, forgive me, and put me on a new path because I have gone, this is my summary of it, I've gone the wrong direction. Create in me a clean heart. He's saying, I can't clean up my own heart. Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and put a new spirit in me. I am so broken. I can't heal myself. I need you. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And do not cast me from your presence. And then he says, and then I will teach others about your goodness and your love and your mercy. Now, I don't know how long, how long it took from David to write Psalm 51 to write Psalm 32. But at some point, David was sitting down and feeling gratitude that God had not cast him aside. That God had forgiven him. I'll be honest, it's hard to understand how God could forgive it, but that's, listen, God could forgive David, God can forgive anyone, and if a good man like David can do such a, anyone can fall, anyone, anyone, any one of us. 
If it was not too late for David, it's not too late for any one of us because, because that's the love we see in Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? The Apostle Paul says there's no condemnation for us who are in Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, he died for all sin. That we can trust God with our confession, with our heart. Because his goal is to redirect us, not to condemn us. His goal is to save us, not to destroy us. The grace of God, it's, it's the grace and love of God. And it's not free, it cost him his son. Our sin, our grief caused God, cost God his one and only son. That's the gospel. No condemnation in Jesus Christ, for there's nothing ever separated us from the love of God. So David says, David says, heal me and I will teach you. So we don't know how much time passed. But then afterwards, he writes Psalm 32. I groaned and struggled with myself until I came clean. And then the joy of being released from the burden of my guilt. Anybody need a release? To be set free? And this is what he says. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will count you of my loving eye on you. And I love this line. Do not be like the horse or the mule. You know what he's saying? Don't be a jack. Right? Don't be so stubborn that you won't listen to anyone. The foolish person is the person who will not take instruction from another person who has to be controlled by bit and bridle. And he says, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. What's the difference between the wicked and those who trust in him? Those who've confessed and bring their life before God. Everyone. And he says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. You know who are the righteous? Those who bring their life before God. It's not the perfect person. It's the person who brings himself before God and trusts in the mercy of God. All you who are upright in heart. He's saying, I want to put you on the right path. So here are four points from Captain Obvious this morning. The four points from Captain Obvious. The four things we can learn from Captain Obvious. Number one. When we fall, there's a path back. There's a path back. Number two, the foundation of confession is trust. We can bear our soul to God because God is a good God. A good God wouldn't send his son to this world to suffer and be sacrificed for us. I mean, I mean a bad God wouldn't. A good God does. The third is, God is eager to forgive, but we can't. But God can't forgive what we deny. Somebody go, ooh, ooh, yeah. And four, the unfailing love of God is what we need. 